We're glad y'all are here tonight. We're going to continue our study of the uh, spiritual disciplines. Tonight will be Simplicity Part 2. And I would love for this to be a six-part study, but um, that there's other things we need to get to. So this will be our last time in, in, in looking at simplicity tonight. And I'm hoping to be able to preach on it some in the next month or so. So um, I need to pray for direction tonight because I started out reading Richard Foster's book and his chapter on simplicity. And I got to the end, I was like, there's got to be more than that. And there was, there was a footnote that said, for more, read my book, Freedom of Simplicity. So I went and read that book and and still in the process. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. I wonder if anyone else has anything. And then this guy, Joe Rigney, released this book called The Things of Earth. And, um, and so, you know, I'm trying to cram three books worth of stuff into two studies. So what, what, we, what I want y'all to help me pray for tonight is just particular direction, not to uh, leave anything out important, but also not to try to get to every single detail because we've got more time and more things to look at. So if this is your first time with us, I want you to know on Wednesday nights, we generally work through the Bible. Sunday mornings, we move very slowly through the Bible, through books of the Bible, and what we call expositional preaching and teaching. Verse by verse, that keeps everybody honest, and we don't get to skip the parts that are hard that we don't want to talk about. Wednesday nights, we do the same thing, but we move a lot more quickly. Rather than spending, you know, a decade in a book, we'll spend uh, a week or two in a book. And so we're trying to move more quickly, and our goal in that, um, as the leadership's talked about it, is that we would really like for anyone who grows up into this church, grows up in this church, to be able to look back after their time here and say, yeah, I've, I got the full counsel of the word. And so that, that's sort of the goal there. So what we're doing now on Wednesday nights is a little bit of a deviation from the norm in that we are um, doing a study this semester on the spiritual disciplines, four inward spiritual disciplines, four outward spiritual disciplines, and then four corporate spiritual disciplines. And so um, we, we've looked at all the inward disciplines, and we're now looking at the outward disciplines. So y'all pray with me. And um, also afterwards, before everyone jets, if I forget to say it, I need some guys to hang around because we need to stack and move some chairs and move some tables. It'll take just a few minutes, but we want to help the ladies get ready for the ladies' retreat, which will be taking place largely in here. So don't, when I say amen, don't hit the door or I'm going to trip you on the way out and make you stay in hell. So let's pray. Lord, we love you very much. We count it a great privilege to be able to stop down in the middle of a week and, uh, and consider your word and particularly this week, to consider, continue considering the disciplines. Lord, I pray that you would um, keep me honest in my teaching. I pray that as I sit and talk about these disciplines and the importance of the dis- these disciplines, um, that I would not be doing so as someone who sounds like he's mastered anything. Um, but I am very, very challenged in considering some of these areas where I am... Um, utterly in need of work, um, particularly simplicity. I've been very convicted personally by a life that I live and a life that many I love live um, that is anything other than simple. So I pray that you would help us through your word to better understand that tonight, to better long for what you want us to long for, to, to be eager to spend our time where you want us to spend our time. I also pray for the kids as they're in their classes. I pray that the, the uh, teachers um, who are helping and instructing them would 
would have clarity and would be able to get through to them. I pray that their little hearts and minds are eager to hear and receive. I pray for hearts of stone to be replaced with hearts of flesh that will receive your instruction. I also pray for our fifth and sixth graders as they're engaging the same thing we're engaging tonight. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for our time tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so what is the goal so far of all of the disciplines? What's the goal? Total transformation of the person. Sounds like a motivational speaker sort of lingo and phrase. Total transformation of the person. The reason we got to understand that up front is that if you're like looking at the spiritual disciplines to sort of dabble in considering maybe some areas where you just might need some work, the disciplines themselves biblically would say all, all y'all need all of your work. Like there's no small section of work anyone needs. We all need total transformation. The goal is to genuinely be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so what we're looking at here is not just, well, sure, I could be a little more disciplined and maybe prayer. So I'll go to this discipline study. The idea is that we're saying the disciplines are difficult. By nature of the, their existence, it takes discipline to follow through with them. And even more discipline for that to be sort of a lifestyle of, of things that we are focusing on. And so the goal here is total transformation of the person. So the things we're talking about, if ever there was a warning, two things, if ever there was a warning to make sure to be doers of the word and not hearers only, this is important. Because when we hear these things, when I read about simplicity particularly, I'm just like, oh, that sounds great. I hate the clutter in our house, and I hate the clutter in our schedule, and I hate the clutter in the car, and I'm like, oh, let's simplify. Let's give junk away. Let's, let's, uh, let's give more junk away. Let's throw some stuff away. Um, let's simplify some things. Let's, and not just simplify our belongings, but simplify our schedules. Let's, let's throw some activities away. I mean, I just I love the idea of simplifying, but just because I have read it and I have been moved emotionally by it does not mean I have simplified one single thing in my life. So we have to be careful as we continue talking about simplicity because it's one of those things where we're called to be hearers and doers of the word so that you are not deceived. That means there's a kind of knowledge that's deceitful to you in your life. And that knowledge that's deceitful is when you think you're doing something just because you know it or just because you heard it or just because you studied it. You've deceived yourself because you're not actually moving in obedience to our Lord. The other, the other part of that is, is just because you've heard it doesn't mean you've lived it. It's, it's just to simplify that. So we can hear sermons and get fired up. Man, that's great. I mean, have any of us fasted yet? I mean, you don't have to raise your hands, but we talked about fasting a lot, and, and, and I was pretty fired up about some, some, some of the details on it, but are, are we fasting? So there's things to put into practice every day. And uh, in, in the area of simplicity, it's really a lifestyle. It's really not just, well, I'm gonna, I was very simple this week. It's, the, there's more change that has to come about. Um, so go ahead, and we're going to continue to review a few things. Total transformation of the purpose is the goal of this one. Turn to Ecclesiastes 7. We, we set up a little bit of a foundation last week, and, and our goal this week is to build on it, and, and then we're going to end our time with some very, very uber practical things that are the outward expression of an inward spirit that's been changed. So our goal most of the night is to look at the inward spirit that has been changed, understanding our our nature and our propensities and proclivities and why we do things and why we don't. We want to look at that inner nature and the inner transformation that comes about for those who are in Christ 
and then we'll look at some really practical stuff. So Ecclesiastes 7, 29, the writer of Ecclesiastes has studied man, and what he has landed on is, um, I, I don't know what to make of these crazy things called mankind. He said, I want to understand them. I'm going to apply my heart and my mind to understand why does man do what man does and why does a woman do what a woman does. And he lands on this spot of saying, uh, I studied it and I have no idea. They all have different reasons. They all move in different ways. It's hard to make sense of it. But at the end of this chapter in Ecclesiastes 7, he says this, see this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Um, one biblical translation and a number of commentators would, um, would use the word simple. God made man simple, but he sought out many schemes. Just a way to look at that is not to say he made man stupid or he made man incapable, but he made man for a purpose, and he was clear on the purpose, and he equipped man to be able to do that purpose. But man sought out many schemes. Um, so uh, what, is, what does this tell us about straying from simplicity? Yeah. yeah. Straying from simplicity complicates the life that God designed you to have. Turn over to Matthew 6. This is a very, very important verse or set of verses when we're talking about um, the kingdom of God and understanding the discipline of simplicity. Matthew 6, I want to start in 23. I'm going to start, no, I'm going to start somewhere else. I'm going to go to Matthew 6 and I'm going to start in 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the heaven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, because of all that, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you struggle with anxiety, simplicity is something that will be very refreshing to you. It'll be like a drink of water on a, on a hot day if you study or struggle with anxiety in any capacity. Simplicity is something that will help, and it is rooted in seeking first the kingdom of God. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God?
That's a great way to say it. I think a lot of times we make the mistake of letting our experiences be the lens by which we view everything. And to seek first the kingdom of God is to say, I'm going to take what he has said about his design and his plan for how I'm to live my life, and I'm going to look through that lens. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to ask him what he wants me to do here rather than say, well, my experience would say I need to put my guard up right now. Or my experience would say I should hoard all my money right now. Or my experience would say I should, you know, steal something even. I mean, there, there are experiences. Our experiences are not the, the measure of, of truth. And so when we talk about seeking first the kingdom of God, we're saying, I'm going to look at what God has designed. That, that verse in Romans 12 that I talk about all the time, being transformed by the renewal of your mind, the verse right before it says, um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. What that means is your entire created purpose is to glorify God. Like, if you ever have that existential conversation with yourself, why am I here? What are we doing here? Are we really here? You know, if you have those conversations, the, the answer is to glorify God. Your, your created purpose was to bring God glory. You, you still have a borrowed breath, and you're supposed to bring God glory with it. And so here, when we start talking about seeking first the kingdom, that you're saying, I'm going to seek first the kingdom because I believe that's what he made me for. I believe he made me for his kingdom. And I'm going to view things through the lens of his design and his purposes. And that is where you will find a life of simplicity. Now, ironically, it did not take long for humans to mess that up. Who were the first ones to stray from seeking the kingdom? Adam and Eve. The first ones to stray from seeking God's kingdom were Adam and Eve. They had everything they needed. God provided it. God sustained it. God protected it. Yet they did what Ecclesiastes says, and they sought out many schemes. That was the first scheme of many that was sought out, and it was by Adam and Eve, the first created beings. So a biblical view of things when it comes to, to things, a biblical view of things, when it, when, when it talks about material things, turn over to Luke 12. We have gotten... Um, one, one quote that I shared last week was... We as a culture have an insane attachment to things. Insane. And Luke 12, uh, verse 13, um, is the, the parable of the rich fool. And it, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me or a judge or an arbiter, arbitrator um, over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I mean, just imagine standing in you know, Times Square and just going up to a random, hey, one, one's life does not consist in its possessions. Or Firewheel Shopping Center or Rockwall. You know, hey, one's life does not consist in its possessions. People look at you like you had like a third eye in the middle of your forehead. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it, it is so normal. We may not say it out loud, but a lot of our movement in life is people whose lives consist in the abundance of possessions. We work really hard to make a lot of money to buy a lot of stuff. And um, there was a guy that said we, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And um, 
I think Dave Ramsey piggybacked off that, but he was not the original guy to say that. It was, it's much older than that. And so um, we see this view here of don't make a life out of provision. Don't make a life out of possessions. And look over at verse 32. This is after the do not be anxious part. It says, you know, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no, no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Turn back to Luke 6. I want us to understand, I'm just hitting some of these points, to understand what God's design is for us when it comes to stuff. In Luke, tw- in Luke 6, 27, God says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That in itself is very, very countercultural to our get even, eye for an eye, payback sort of culture that we live in. And he goes on to say, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other one. From the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So if someone begs, you give. Scripture has very little concern, if any at all, about why someone's begging. Scripture has very little concern, if any at all, about why someone is is on the side of the road asking for something. Its concern is you and your heart. And I, I confess last week, I will rehearse this thing where it's like, I'll go to, well, if you don't work, you don't eat. So... You know, you've been standing there for three days. You could have done something, surely. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm heartless in that. And I want to work on that because Scripture has very little to say about why someone might be begging, but about what we as Christians do in response when we see someone in need, whatever the reason is. So we can be enablers and we can perpetuate problems and we have to be careful on how we do things. But don't let the possibility of being an enabler or the possibility of perpetuating a problem be your excuse for faithlessness. Because that's, that's not holiness. So, to the one who begs, give. Not just that, but if someone steals your stuff, that's fine. I don't really need it anyway. <laughs> who does that? If, if someone, I remember the first time my car was broken into, I shared that last week. I remember I was in football practice and I had some Jabos. Y'all remember Jabos? They were sweet. They were like blue. Some people called them purple, but they weren't purple. They were blue. And I had Jabos. They had the little tag on the front. And, uh, and I came out of football practice, and uh, someone had stolen them. So my mom was there to pick me up, and I walked out in my shirt and my football pants and all the pads still in them, just kind of walked out. And she's like, why are you wearing your football pants? I was like, someone stole my shorts. And, you know, we, did, we had to save up for those jabos. I mean, that was, a, that was a significant purchase. It was like Zeke Havarichis or something like that. And, uh, and, uh, and so um, I walk out, and, and I say, well, someone stole my shorts. And uh, my mom looks at me and says, we'll go back in and get him. I was like, well, mom, I'm not even sure who stole him. And she was like, well, whoever's wearing him, get him back. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And so I just turn around and walk back in. Reality is she could have said, all right, don't ask for him back. Move on. But that's not how our culture is. That's not how we move. That kind of thinking, like, cool, you stole my stuff, Okay. That kind of thinking is so backwards from the way that we were all brought up here in America. But biblically, it's different. As you wish what others would do to you, do to them. Um, and then it goes on to saying, 
give to people, lend to them, but don't ask for any credit back. Don't ask for any interest because interest is unloving biblically. So what we learned last week was that I think God's calling us to follow him to a life of carefree, unconcerned for possessions. Carefree, unconcerned for your stuff. Foster states, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into insane attachment to things. It's time to awaken to the, prop, to the fact that conformity to a sick society means you're sick. Covetousness, we call that ambition. Hoarding, we call it prudence. Greed, we just call it industry. Make up different words for things that are unbiblical. And I'm not saying that if you have a lot of money or you own land or you have a card with an interest rate or something like that, that you're the devil or anything crazy like that. But I'm saying let, let's let the scriptures temper us. Let's just go to them and say, you know, maybe some changes need to be made. Maybe there's something I can glean from God's design that will help me to be more obedient when he calls me to, um, to giving things away and to helping people in need and to making decisions about my life. What does the Bible say about perpetual ownership of private property? That was the point where I thought I might have lost y'all last week when I said perpetuity, and then it got weird, and it was a long section of Scripture. So just in general, what does the Bible say about owning property forever? It's not yours. Whose is it? Okay. Is that countercultural? I mean, we buy property to hold on to, and, and in fact, biblically, land itself has no value in the Bible. The crops that can be yielded on a particular piece of land, that's the value you pay. But here, we pay, we go from paying by the acre to sometimes we pay by the square inch, depending on what we're buying or selling. And so, scripturally, God's design was never to just own property and hold on to it and and um, the reason for it is he says, it's mine. The earth is mine and everything in it. And, and what we talked about last week was the year of Jubilee. And I want to clean up a couple details on that because my math was off. I'll admit it. May have, some of y'all may have already caught it. But it says like in the seventh year, in the seventh month, in the 36, carry the one, repetent eight, what, you know, all these things, these math things. It, I, I said, I think what I said was, the year of Jubilee happens every seven years. That's not true. There are things that happen in seven-year increments that lead up to the year of Jubilee. And Ken actually mentioned it afterwards. He was like, I don't know. I'm going to go home and get out a calculator. We'll figure this out. I was like, yeah, we'll work on it together. And when I looked at it, it was, uh, it's, he was right. And so there are things that happen in these seven-year increments that are significant. But the year of Jubilee itself happens every 50 years. Okay. Now, that doesn't undo the significance of the year of Jubilee. It happens every 50 years. So now I want to talk about this a little more because that actually gives us a little bit something to build upon now that we know the right math. So cleaning up some details and continuing to build on what we found. Last week, I stated it was every seven years, it's every 50. Um, In Leviticus 25, we find this thing called the year of Jubilee. Go ahead and turn to Leviticus 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 25. The details of the year of Jubilee are foreign to us in large part, and when we read them, and I'm not going to read all of them, don't worry. We're not going to restate everything we stated last week, we're just going to build on it a little bit. 
It's foreign to us. It's different. And the reality that we find in Scripture, if you were to continue reading and studying in Leviticus and the following chapters and books, there's no record of God's people ever actually putting this into practice. Isn't that telling? Here's all these details about how to do this for these reasons. And as a people, God's people have been so stubborn and so stiff-necked that there's really no record of this ever being put into practice because there were um, exiles that, that kept things from happening because of the faithlessness of the people. So we could say, well, maybe it was a bad idea. Or we could say maybe it was a great idea and sort of explore what might happen should a group of people actually put these things into practice. I want us to consider what might have been had they obeyed. One commentator says, almost without exception, the promised provision in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture was for the, for the community rather than the individual. Health and wealth jokers will jump on provision verses and apply them in an individual manner. They'll see, do this, and God will bless you in this manner, and boom, they'll jump on it. You, that can happen for you, and for you, and for you. And it was always supposed to be a y'all. It's always been a plural community thing. The stress was always upon the good of the nation, the good of the tribe, the good of the clan. And this one commentator says, the idea that one could cut off a piece of the consumer pie and go off and enjoy it in isolation was unthinkable. But that's what we do. Cut off a piece of the consumer pie and enjoy it in isolation. Another commentator says the year of Jubilee, he explains it like this. The year of Jubilee is a call to a divinely enabled freedom from possessions and an equitable restructuring of social arrangements. Inherent in the concept of the Jubilee was a carefree spirit of joyous trust. So, I don't want to be so... There's a difference between simplicity and being simplistic. And simplistic thinking would say, well, we just need to apply this very old mosaic, uh, or not even mosaic, this, this Old Testament Levitical law um, to our current situation and make things right in America. Um, that's not what we're trying to do. Um, that, that would be foolish to try to accomplish um, that. Um, but I want to warn you, I do think there's something to glean in, in what we're engaging here, even though it was never put into practice in the first place. When I say equitable restructuring of social arrangements, I mean, some of y'all might be thinking, well, I think I'm a Republican, and I don't think I'm for that. That sounds a little more Democratic. Are you a socialist? Or, I mean, we can just jump to these big labels about what that sounds like or what that, that's, that's a hint of this or a hint of that. Let's just take it as God's word and consider how it might affect the way we live. Leviticus 25.10 says this. I want you all to pay attention to this joyous trust in the Lord that is the base and the root in the heart that plays out in this outward expression in the year of Jubilee. 25.10 says this. 25.10 says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year. I don't know why it was so hard for me to get to that last week. Stuck on the sevens. <laughs> and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, 
So on the 50th year, proclaim what? Liberty. The point here is liberty. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Throw open the doors and scream liberty because this is a year of jubilee. This is proclamation through the land for freedom and liberty. This, I mean, it almost sounds a little American. It's just not the way we would do it. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, um, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Those two details come together to show us that um, God tells them to do this because it's his land and his provision. He's going to provide. He's going to give them what they need in place of, because you're not supposed to even sow in that time. In that year, you're not going to sow, and then that's going to affect you in the, the, the three years following because you didn't sow, so you're not going to reap. Then at some point, you've got to sow, but then you've got to wait for the next reaping. And so there's this sort of compounded effect like, oh, man, doesn't God understand agriculture and, and horticulture and, and crops and all that? And yeah, God, yeah, he made it, and, and he could flat out command a blessing out of the land that's, that's provisioned for you. That's why we celebrate the Sabbath. We celebrate the Sabbath because of what God did in creation, and he rested on the seventh day. And what we're saying is we believe our God is big enough to command a blessing from the land so that we can have seven days of provision and six days of work. The Sabbath is not just a day off or a football day or whatever. It's a perpetual reminder of God's provision and our trust of him and our trust of what he can provide. So my question is this. This year, return to your land. If you lost your land or your dad lost the land, return to it. If you're a slave, you're free. If you have a debt, it's canceled. Every 50 years. Okay. Some of us are like, that would be awesome because I got like lots of school debt. That'd be cool. Um, What kinds of problems would this have prevented had it been adhered to? Let's just go down the road. What if they would have done it? What kind of problems may have been prevented not solved, flat out prevented. And I'll encourage you to maybe think about some problems we face as a nation. Debt, yeah. Debt, for those who are not clear on it, is a problem. And so um, this would not have allowed for debt. But how would the debt have been taken care of? What? Canceled. What does that mean? Forgiven. But who's... I mean, everybody wins, right? Or does anyone lose out in that equation? People would stop lending. People wouldn't be able to get into debt. All of a sudden, debt's not a real great way to make a living. Because guess who cancels the debt? The holder of your goods, the one who has your land, the one who you borrowed from and paid something in collateral, the one who may own you during this time. There were some who lost everything and they had to sell themselves into slavery to pay their dues and to get by and to get food. What did that mean for their children if they did the year of Jubilee? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Because we're not, it would, it would have eliminated the problem of squabbles with, squabbles with inheritance because usually those are over the issue of rich getting richer and poor getting poorer and that kind of dynamic that exists because of that. So there would still be inheritance, and where there's inheritance, there would probably still be some squabbles, but it would be a totally different ballgame because if my father in that time had made terrible decisions financially, in the 50th year, I wouldn't be paying for my father's bad decisions. I would have an opportunity to have land and sow and reap. And so um, what are some other things that y'all could think of that might... Yeah. Yeah, there's more equality between people because all of them are humbly submitting to the lordship of God. They're all looking at God as the one who is king. God is the one who is landowner. They would, if they adhered to that, they would be saying, for me to hold on to this land is to steal it from who? God. What else might have been prevented? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the oppression that they had that they had to be redeemed out of wouldn't have existed. So, reminder that God uses even the crooked sticks to make things straight. Yeah, there wouldn't be an overcrowded prison system. I'm wanting us to go through this exercise because this is completely... Not just countercultural. I think at some point we're so ingrained with this American way of living and debt's okay and we should get stuff and accumulate it and hold on to it that I don't think it's just countercultural. I think for some of us it's flat out counterintuitive. It goes against what our heart thinks and what our mind says. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. People be more inclined to help each other. Yeah, it keeps you from depending on the wrong things for, for relief and depending on um, something that maybe wasn't God's design. Some thoughts that um, some others have shared in light of this, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, that gap that exists between people wouldn't be as big. There would be legislative justice on behalf of the poor, no matter why they're poor. There would be an institutionalized legal mechanism for solving a social and spiritual problem. There would be a vicious cycle of... Um, Property, ownership, and hoarding broken. Um, Children wouldn't be crushed by the economic legacy left by their poor parents. So there's a lot of good things that would come from from doing things by God's design. What are some of the potential pitfalls? Like if we just say, all right, we're all making a change tonight. We're going to... Yep, the mass murderers arrested in the 49th year. Do you do legal work by chance? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. There may be a, an incentive loss to work hard. Right. And if there's no borrow money in the 49th year, 
Yeah. And all of those things exist because we didn't do what God said. Like those, those factors that y'all just brought up are totally true in our, in our situation. Be like, well, if we don't hold people to that, they're not going to work hard. And there wouldn't be any incentive. And man, everyone would be taking on debt the 48th and 49th year, buying big houses they can't afford because it's given. Those dynamics wouldn't even exist if this was the way that it was done from the get-go. Those are things that exist because of a cycle that was a scheme that was sought out, to use scriptural language. And so, and I think that when we start looking at debt, we start looking at property, schemes are a really good word. Scheme starts to make a lot more sense. Sought out many schemes, schemes to make money, schemes to get rich, and schemes to oppress the poor um, in huge part. That's a huge part of our culture. A huge problem with our culture uh, is, is oppression of the poor and manipulation of those who are already on hard times and desperate. Absolutely. Absolutely, because if you're not freed from that at some point and you're not conditioned to free others from that at some point, it becomes a, a means of, of domination and a means of oppression and a means of um, essentially getting more work out of people that are indebted to you. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that was part of it. Part of, you know, they would come out of that. I mean, some might learn a work ethic while they were a slave and then come out of being a slave and say, well, hey, now I know what it means to work hard. And I'm not owned by anybody. And so there's this freedom. There's this, I mean, proclaim liberty in all the land is, is, is what's happening here. Um, Foster in his book says, of all the disciplines, getting back to sort of our day and time, the simplicity is the most visible and therefore the most open to corruption. Simplicity is the most visible and the most open to corruption. You have to be careful because when you make decisions to live a more simple life in our society, people will notice quickly. If you were to go from a big house to a little house, what would people ask? What's wrong? <laughs> yeah. What's wrong? Yeah. Yeah, we had, <laughs> we, when we first moved here, I had a bunch of debt because I grew up in North Dallas and had no understanding biblically of the problems with debt, and I was an entitled jerk. So um, I had... That was up to my eyeballs in debt, and my wife and I were sitting here, and, and we had no kids, and you'd think, man, dual income, no kids, you should be great, but we weren't because of debt, and, um, and we looked at our cars, and we looked at all this stuff, and, and I, said, uh, I said, man, I'm in ministry, and I don't, I don't know if we could do a genuine tithe if my life depended on it. That's a bad place to be. I said, we've got to make some changes, and so we did. We sold some unnecessarily expensive cars and bought something far more practical, Got her a little Honda Accord, and for two years, I rode a red moped, 50cc moped. Um, I'm not a real small person, and the moped is a small vehicle, and uh, top speed of 38 miles per hour, and uh, I rode it for two years. I paid for, uh, it got 100 miles per gallon, and um, there was no secret that I was riding it because I stuck out like a sore thumb in Greenville, um, big bald guy on a little and, um, and uh, 
100 miles per gallon, and then after driving it for two years, I sold it for a dollar more than I paid for it. It was great. And most people said, hey, what is wrong with you? Why don't you get a real car? You're, get or, or <laughs> What I usually got was, why don't you at least get a real motorcycle? You look like an idiot. Like, that was what I usually got. But it sticks out. It's open to corruption. There was this decision that we made that was good. But then there were some days where it was sort of like, well, people can see me, and that's okay, and I'm not embarrassed. And then someday you could go from not being embarrassed to being sort of proud on your stupid little red moped. Look how holy I am in my 38 miles per hour. It's ridiculous. So it's open to corruption because what we end up doing is we canonize our choices as the simple life. Because then what happens? I start talking to my friends. I'm like, man, everyone should have a moped. I don't know why y'all have these cars. And, I'll, and now you're judgmental and you're canonizing what you've done. You're like, do you realize this thing, this hog here gets 100 miles per gallon? What's your truck get? Why do you need a truck? You only drive two miles to L3. Everybody drives two miles to L3. There should be mopeds lining the L3 parking lot because I'm going to canonize my, my own thoughts on what the simple life looks like. So it's open to corruption. So we have to watch out for that pitfall. We have to watch out for the arrogance that can go along with what was originally a good and healthy decision. The sheer fact that a person is living without things, another pitfall, is no guarantee that they're living in simplicity. I have discovered that often those who have it the least love it the most. I've been in that situation in life too. We didn't have much, but boy, I love the idea of heaven. I love working and scheming to, I might not be able to afford that car, but I can buy this one and flip it for this and then trade it for this and flip it for this and then get to that car if I work my way up to it. And man, you can get consumed with just because you don't have a lot doesn't mean that you're living a life of simplicity. You may be more idolatrous of things than the person who has millions. There's no guarantee there. You've got to be careful with that. In Matthew 6, we engage the realities about the things we have. Listen to this statement. If what we have, we receive as a gift. So everything you have, God reminds us again and again in Scripture, you have it because I gave it to you. It's a gift. So if what we have, we receive as a gift, and what we have is cared for by God. Remember, God tells us, look at the birds, consider the lilies. I care for them. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's a nice notion. He's like, no, seriously, go outside and look at the birds. Look and consider the lilies. God made those as reminders that he not only the things we have he gives us, but the things we have he cares for. And if what we have is supposed to be available to others, he who knows the right thing and fails to do it, um, for him it is a sin. If you have the goods that your brothers need or people in the community need and you don't give it to them when the time is right, you are stealing those goods from God biblically. So we have all these things. What we receive is a gift. It's cared for by God and it should be available to others. If, if that's true in your life, you will possess freedom from anxiety. How, how are you going to be anxious if you view it that way? Oh, man, I got this awesome thing. Where did it come from? God gave it to me? Oh, well, how do you protect it? Do you use it a club or do you have a really good security system? Or No, God protects it. Oh, really? Well, can I use it? Sure. Oh, man, what if someone stole it? Oh, I don't care. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, there's this, if we break from this insane attachment to things, anxiety is kind of hard to find. 
all the things that are fueling that fire of anxiety are taken out. Like, have you ever tried to start a fire when you don't have any good tinder? You can't get the fire going. It just snuffs out and snuffs out and snuffs out. If you try to use like wet firewood, it just doesn't work. That's what this is doing. It's sort of taking away the things that would fan the flames of anxiety. And you're not just doing it by taking away things. It's your view of them. It's your view. You're saying, God gave this to me. God oversees what he's given to me. And God tells me to make it available to other people. And God tells me that if someone steals it, I'm supposed to say, whatever. And if someone begs for me, I'm supposed to give them some of what I have. Regardless of why they're poor or begging. That is, a, that is, that is the lifestyle of simplicity. It's this inner perspective that changes the way we move outwardly. So just think about the opposite of that. What about the opposite? What is the opposite of those things that I just said? We have something because what? What's the opposite of God gave it to us? Because I worked hard to get it, dang it. And if God's not looking after it and protecting it, then who is? And I'm going to protect it. Yeah. I've been installing security systems as a side job since I was 15. It's good stewardship sometimes to have a security system, if, especially if your house gets broken into a lot. It's no problem having a security system, but don't think. I have seen more people increase their levelings of anxiety after they got the security system because they're saying, okay, is it working right? Okay, I want to test it. Okay, is, this, is it working right? Okay, well, if someone comes through that, is it going to go off? And all of a sudden, the security system provides a total lack of security because they're putting all their hope in the wrong thing. Every time I install a security system, I pray over the, the place that I'm installing it at. And Lord, help them not to put their hope in possessions or this security system. I don't tell them that because I need to sell the security system, but, <laughs> but I don't want them to put their hope in it. I don't want it to be their God. But the opposite is true. If, if we feel like we have what we have because we worked hard and earned it, and we feel like it's our responsibility to, to protect it and to take precautions to make sure it doesn't disappear... And then if we, because of that, those two factors mean it's not available to other people. A lot of people don't open their homes to anybody because they worked hard to get it and they don't want visitors to screw it up when they bring their 10 kids because they're at Crosspoint. <laughs> the, the result is you're anxious. The result's anxiety. If I view it as I made it, I earned it, I'll protect it, and it's not available to others, all of your junk is now making you utterly anxious, and it's not necessary. God's design's way better. Like, way better, but you're carrying around anxiety if the opposite is your reality. So there's these three inner attitudes that characterize our lives if we take seriously what Jesus means when he says, don't be anxious. When he says, don't be anxious, he's saying, pursue this life of simplicity, meaning don't just try to be, it's not, we're not even talking about being this like minimalist. God's saying, just live the way I tell you to live. Hold loosely to the things of earth. Seek first the kingdom. Make your goods available to other people. Be big-hearted and open-handed. It's not bad to own things, but don't put your hope in them. Don't turn blessings into stolen goods, is what he's saying. So there's this inner attitude that will help us enjoy things more. This book that I'm reading right now that I'll preach on some of the details from it in, in light of these scriptures, The Things of Earth, he's taken that line, The Things of Earth Grow Strangely Dim in the Light of His Glory and Grace, and he's just saying, maybe they don't. Maybe the things of earth grow strangely bright in light of God's grace. Maybe we as Christians should be the ones who actually know how to enjoy things as opposed to, 
don't enjoy your ribeye too much because that's joy that could go to the Lord and you're going to take it from him if you enjoy that ribeye too. Don't idolize this thing if you start enjoying it. It's like this constant suspicion of everything to where you enjoy nothing. Maybe there's a balance to be found in that. But there is an inner attitude that will help us to actually enjoy what we have if we're not worried about losing it and we're not worried about it being our God. So, some outward expressions that I'll share very quickly. There's ten of them because that's a good round number. Ten controlling principles for the outward expression of simplicity. Buy things, number one, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Be utilitarian in your purchase of items. Is this going to work? We buy so many things that don't, they don't work, yet we bought it to impress someone. They're broken junk at the back of the car. We don't even use it anymore. Buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. You don't have to write all these down. I'll, I'll email them out this week. Just listen. The second is reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. Life simplicity. Reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. For some of you, that will mean get rid of the credit cards. For some of you, that will mean um, unplugging the TV, cutting off your cable service, doing away with the internet, um, stop dealing drugs. I mean, anything that produces an addiction in you, um, get rid of it. Remember, an addiction by its very nature is something that's beyond your control. So it's this, God says if your hand causes you to sin, hack it off. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. So, I mean, his pursuit of holiness for you is an, an, an arm-hacking, eye-gouging pursuit of holiness is what the Bible says. So if it's beyond your control, get rid of it. The third thing, develop a habit of giving things away. Deaccumulate. Masses of things that are not needed, just complicate your life. Just go into your closet and say, if it's been more than however many months, I'm not going to put a number on it because I don't want people to get legalistic. Just get rid of it. Refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. The U.S. has less than 6% of the world's population and we consume 33% of the world's energy because we buy a bunch of junk that we don't need. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Ooh, I'm terrible about that. If there's a tool that I know about, I don't want to borrow it from anybody. I want to own that tool because it's worth having. I hate borrowing tools. But enjoy things without owning them. Go to the park. Enjoy the park. Don't have to buy a park to enjoy it. <laughs> Develop a deeper appreciation for creation. Look with healthy skepticism at anything that says buy now and pay later. Obey Jesus' instruction about plain and honest speech. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. And finally, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom. All right, we're going to pray, and then the guys are going to help me move chairs. You know what, ladies, if y'all want to help too, you are just as able to move chairs as the guys. I do not want to oppress you in that manner. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this time tonight. I pray that we would take what we've learned and apply it to our lives and move in more obedient, holy simplicity. Ultimately, what we're seeing here is the repeated theme in Scripture of not looking out for our own interests only, but for the interests of others and seeking others first and treating others as we would like to be treated. It's all about the love of Christ in, in, in the kingdom of God. Lord, we are thankful for your design. Pray that we would have wisdom in it. In Jesus' name, amen.